So Money episode 593, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host Kimmy Green. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. Welcome back. It's Friday, June 30th. Ask Farnoosh time. And we have a very special co-host, a friend and colleague from Mint.com. As you know, I've been partnering with Mint for the past year, been writing for their blog, been doing some fun events with Mint. A lot of you are Mint users. I'm a Mint fan, I think since 2000, oh gosh, seven at least. And been getting really more into it now with so many expenses including a second child. Things add up, people. It's nice to have everything, um, you know, in my phone, on the go. And I thought it'd be fun to bring on Kimmy Green, who is head of communications for Mint and also a mother and a very, very busy working mother. She makes it happen. She's a, a rainmaker. What can I say? And so we thought it'd be fun because we're two moms. We're two working moms. We have very busy schedules. We love money. We thought we would canvas the audience for their money questions related to parenting and family finances. And we got a, I got a nice uh, little, little batch of questions here. So without further ado, I want to introduce Kimmy and say hello and welcome. Thanks, Varnish. So glad to be here. Thank you for being here. By the way, this is a special episode because Kimmy is in person with me. You know, typically I interview people over Skype or VoIP. But Kimmy, as I said, she's a busy mom and traveling worker. She's here from California to come to New York. We're actually going to be doing a special event tomorrow night with uh, the team of the Girl Boss team. Sophia Amoroso and her new media empire, girlboss.com. We're going to be doing a fun panel about all things money, an impolite conversation about money. And Kimmy uh, helped spearhead that event. And that's why she's here. And I thought it would be fun to to talk money. Do you like talking about money? I mean, you must because you work at Mint. I absolutely love talking about money. I don't always love spending money. It's really tough balance. Um, You know, how to be true to yourself when it comes to money, how to know what your family's priorities are, and how to just make it through the day, the month, the year without too many surprises at the end. Are you one of those people that people like your friends come to you for advice all the time? Well, you know, I'm really the one who always wants to talk about money. And as we know, it's a tough conversation and not everybody's open to chatting about their finances. And so I'll be like, what are you guys spending on X? And people are like, I haven't thought of it. So I really want to spearhead that conversation and just be part of it more and more, whether that's here on the podcast, you know, online. And it's just a great way for us to all be more authentic in what we're thinking about and making the right choices. You've been with Mint for almost a year. Um, What's your hope and plans for the company as far as getting it out there? I mean, that's really your initiative is to help Mint become more and more of a household name. Absolutely. I mean, we really worked hard this year to bring bill pay into Mint in a single app experience. So everything you want and need to do with your money, whether it's budgeting, setting savings goals, paying your bills, looking at your credit score, you can do it all in one place. So what we want to do in the coming year is take that all in one place functionality and make it highly personal. Make sure that Mint knows you. And that's just not where you're spending your money, but what are your goals and can we make it a super smart experience going forward? And we want everyone to be talking about that. So A, have it feel like it's it's your own app and B, be willing to start more of this conversation around money we're having today. It's true. Personalization is is the key to a lot of 
what makes a product or service successful, whether you're talking about your iPhone or a pair of sneakers or a financial app that's going to help you manage your money. We have some smart money questions and I want you to help us sift through them, Kimmy, if you, if you don't mind. We have a question here from Gilbert and I'm happy to say he is from the Netherlands because people actually do listen to the show from overseas. That's pretty cool. I love it that folks are listening from all over the world and that we can reach out to Gilbert today. His question is really focused on um, his eldest son, who's 12 years old, and he receives a monthly allowance of 20 euros on his bank account with a debit card, and he's a discipline saver. He's becoming interested in investing, and we've heard this a lot. You know, earlier and earlier, people are feeling like investing is a thing they need to do, not just wait till they have a lump sum saved up. But Gilbert wants to know, what age do you find it appropriate to start investing? Uh, which part of his private capital, a few hundred euros, should he his son use for investing? Well, I think that the fact that his son has already expressed some curiosity probably means he's quote unquote ready. I mean, I wouldn't say like a three-year-old is ready, but certainly on with anything to do with money, if your kids are asking you questions, I think sometimes, I mean, this is a great question. I want to learn how to invest. How do I do it? But if it's like an awkward question, like, are we rich? How much money do you make? Parents tend to want to, you know, just run away and go in the opposite direction. But I think it's a an opportunity to really like kind of find out why the child's curious, where that curiosity is coming from, and really have a teachable moment. So I think this is a really great opportunity for Gilbert and his son to learn some basics around investing. It's not something that most people have the chance to learn when they're young. I think that um, before you really work with real money, what do you think, Kimmy, maybe having like a like a fake account, a fantasy account, and you can do that online via a lot of different websites. Like I found one called stockmarketgame.org. That sounds right, Farnoosh, because you don't want to give your children a lump sum money. Say you start out with $500, and what if they have success with that? And then they go out and make bigger bets, and they don't have the success because they don't have the background and experience to really optimize those investments. So I do think start, make a game of it. I mean, talk about it amongst your family. This one's really interesting for me because I grew up the daughter of a financial advisor. And I remember a really early conversation, perhaps too early, around like seven or eight about pencils and erasers that didn't really stick. But there were times when you pick stocks that for brands that the kids are really interested in, whether it's a soft drink or, you know, a retail line or anything that really resonates for them and track those and, and get the idea of what money means long-term and how money can grow because that's a hard concept. It requires some longer term thinking. That's true. Yeah. I mean, the key to investing is to invest in what you know. So spend the year, I would say, studying the companies that interest you and your son and do make a game out of it. Make it a regular habit that you meet every month or every few weeks and kind of visit your stocks. And by giving yourselves a year, Gilbert, I think that will allow for the volatility to to basically become a factor. And then your son can learn that stocks go up and they go down and it's a risk. And so you have to be mindful and, and careful. And as far as like how much of your capital to use for investing once you're ready and you've given your son some of the rudimentary basics. I think, I think, so he makes 20 euros a month, maybe take 10% of that. I don't even know if that's enough to really start investing, but maybe start saving up to then be able to invest. And the real other thing you want to teach your son, as we all know, is the power of diversification. So don't just pick one stock, pick like a basket, five to 10 different stocks so that um, along the way, he's really learning the importance of diversifying. You have two daughters, Kimmy. Have they ever expressed interest in investing? Are they too young? You know, at three and five, Farnoosh... Oh, forget it. (laughs) 
I have not had any pencils and erasers conversations with them yet, but I think that notion of investing time, you know, let's grow some tomatoes this summer and in August, let's make salsa. I mean, that concept of investing and thinking further out. I mean, we were just on a family vacation in the greatest place, you know, the happiest place in the world um, at Disneyland and they wanted everything they saw. So it was like, let you guys can buy one thing, let's look at it all and wait. But that notion of sort of waiting and time and, and that money means something. I know you've chatted about that in past podcasts. Yeah. Delaying gratification, basically. I mean, if that if you teach your kids nothing else, and this is not even just the universal law, I mean, of raising, I think, um, money savvy, but also like capable adults is is delaying gratification. If they can wait uh, to enjoy whatever it is, then they will enjoy that thing a lot more. Okay. Mary is next and she is like a lot of parents with kids that are a little older that are very involved, extracurricular. She's uh, a little overwhelmed. Well, summertime can be so overwhelming. I mean, kids are ready to throw the doors open of school, get some free time, get wet, enjoy the sunshine. And parents are like, oh no. What do I do now? And anything that will occupy my kids, because I don't want them to have the age-old, I'm bored, comes typically with a dollar sign. And so Mary's saying, we earn enough to tackle the major costs every month, like our mortgage and car payments. But with three kids spread between 14 and 7, it's the extracurriculars that are really taking a big hit. It becomes impossible to really have a rainy day fund. Ideas on how to cut costs when it comes down to sports, activities, music lessons, and the list goes on and on. I mean, kids can get so scheduled these days. Overscheduled. And I even find that with my almost three-year-old, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where, like you said, you know, you want them to be busy. You don't want to have boredom, but honestly, boredom can be priceless. Boredom is great. Boredom is when your imagination takes over. Boredom is when you start to really think outside the box and get creative. And so, you know, I, I get maybe with your 14 year old at that point, maybe you're really intensely into something, but pick your thing is I think important. I mean, maybe the seven year old still exploring and trying to figure out what is his or her thing. But I think eventually it's about saying, let's hone in on something. Let's focus on one or two things. And then Mary, if you've got two kids in the same camp for something or the same lessons for something, ask about a sibling discount. That happens. No, absolutely. I mean, I think for the younger kids, you're right. It's still a time of exploration, but there are some places like community centers that may be more cost efficient than, you know, private lessons or private camps. Um, there's, uh, the library has a ton of awesome engagement throughout the summertime and activities. And I read an article recently that kids, you know, once they start reading, really lament that their parents don't read to them anymore. So I know this isn't going to cover the daytime hours, but take some time this summer, the unstructured time you're talking about, Farnoosh, to, you know, try and read with kids or have them be able to use their summertime to dive into books too. That's brilliant. Yeah. My son's three. He loves when we read books to him. And um, I'm happy to know that he will want that, <laughs> even though he'll be able to read when he's uh, five, six, seven years old. Great advice. All right. Okay. This person has a very personal question for me. Farnoosh, how do you and your husband divide and conquer your finances? Who pays for what? All right. So I've been a pretty open book about this. In fact, in my last book, I talked about this and I'll, uh, when she makes more. And so you can read that book and learn all the details. But just to answer your question, we, as you probably know, have an income disparity in our marriage. I make more than my husband. It's enough where I feel like 
for us, it makes sense where I cover a lot of the day to day and the, you know, the, the big expenses like the mortgage and the recurring, very big ticket stuff. My husband is the saver in the family. So I'm the spender and he's the saver in the sense that he is saving long term for our kids. He is putting aside a lot of money towards retirement. He's also, of course, contributing to a lot of the stuff day to day, but that for us is what seemed to make the most sense. I think for couples where there is a lot of income disparity, the person who makes less can sometimes feel less than. So trying to emotionally navigate that, but also practically navigate that is was what our challenge was, but also an opportunity because what we found was that, you know, for my husband to be able to be the primary long-term saver for things like college in the family, that's a huge reward for him to be able to reflect and say, you know what, because thanks to my hard work, I was able to essentially send our kids to college. And I think that's a really wonderful thing. And I think that it's going to be a source of pride. So it works for us. And along the way, we also have free buckets for how we allocate the money. There's my account, his account, and our account. And we, at, at one point, we did work with a financial advisor who was really helpful in the beginning of our marriage, helping us to get kind of squared away, level the playing field, figure out where our weaknesses were as far as insurance and estate planning. But once we worked with her for after about three years, we felt confident to kind of take the reins. And at that point, all that was really left to do was manage our investments. And we don't really feel like we have to actively manage our accounts. So we work with now Robo Advisories and um, occasionally we'll check in with um, some financial experts, but really we've taken on the brunt of it and we feel confident about that. So that's us. Kimmy, do you want to divulge on personally? Okay. No, absolutely. I mean, this one has evolved for us over time, Farnoosh, for sure. And we have the same setup with the three accounts, mine, his, and ours. And before we had kids, we jointly paid into the hours, but kept everything else to ourselves. And as we had children, it was amazing, particularly as I was on, you know, classic maternity leave. I didn't make my full salary while I was out for three months. You know, we all of a sudden the the balance was disrupted that we had set in place for a handful of years. And over time now, as we've added a second kiddo to the mix, um, it's now everything we need to cover our family's expenses and goals from a savings perspective goes into a joint account. And Roger and I keep a very small (laughs) percentage. And that's really to buy each other gifts. Like I'm talking teeny tiny percent of what's left over. And so it's been a conversation for us over time. And um, we have worked with a financial advisor as well. And that's really bigger picture, what's going on in the market, things we don't feel like we can keep as much of a pulse on. But I do have a pet project as a mom of two daughters that um, wedding savings is something we've already thought about and seeded with a little bit of money from when I was a consultant for myself for two years. And so that's my, I'm using some sort of robo savings tools to, to layer onto that because it's not something that needs to grow massively. But if I'm thinking about it now when they're so young. Very proactive of you. And it's true. Parents of the bride are still traditionally the ones who end up paying not all, but the most out of the pie. And I just wrote about that for Mint. I was kind of, kind of surprised, but also not because, you know, the institution of marriage is such, it goes way back. And I think it's a very nostalgic moment. And a lot of parents, you would be surprised. Like you think your parents have saved nothing, but they've been looking forward to this and actually they have saved something for this occasion. So it's always worth asking (laughs) if they want to pitch in. And if you have any more questions about how my husband and I divide and conquer our finances, if I've left anything uh, not discussed, just, just ask. That's what the Friday episodes are for. Okay. Lizzie's got a question about the 529. Do you have a 529? 
You know, we don't have a 529, so I'm super excited for us to talk about this question. And there's a few reasons why, um, and you may know a little bit more about this, Farnoosh, than we have, but it, it differs by state. And we just moved not too long ago from Colorado to California. So our approach when we were in Colorado is a little bit different than what we probably need to be doing now that we're in California. But Lizzie's wondering, you know, should we save in a 529 plan if we're not 100% sure our child will attend college? It's not that we don't have high hopes for her, but by the time she is ready in 15 years, college may not be all that's necessary. Already, companies like Google and Ernst & Young are among a number of top employers that don't require a college degree from applicants. It's true. It's a legit concern. I think that the whole college landscape is evolving. I just interviewed Adam Braun, who is uh, the founder of Pencils of Promise, but his latest venture is called, I believe it's called Mission U. And what it, it's like an alternative to the standard four-year college program. And essentially, this is a one-year program. You get to learn some hard skills like software development and then hopefully transition into working at companies like Google and Facebook. They have partnerships with these amazing brands. And then it's free. But you have to pay them back through your salary over the course of however many years. It's a very practical approach to college, really making sure you get that ROI. I'm not sure what college is going to look like in 15 years for you know for Lizzie's kids, but I will say with the 529, it is somewhat flexible. It's not as flexible as say a Roth IRA or a brokerage account in the sense that you can take out the money for things other than college and not be penalized, but. If your kids don't end up going to college, you can use the money for your education. You have other kids, other relatives. You can always change the beneficiary. Now, if this is still not something that you're 100% comfortable with, then do look at the Roth IRA. Do look at a brokerage account. And then as far as the different kinds of 529s, which you brought up, Kimmy, every state has their own. You can choose to invest in any state's 529 plan. Even if you live in Colorado, you can invest in uh, you know, New York's 529 plan, which is where I have two accounts for our kids. And I love it. You can look at all the different kinds of 529 plans online at collegesavings.org and look at the historical performance of the different 529 plans because every state invests in different things. And um, yeah, start there. What do you think? Well, I think that absolutely, Farnish, when our girls were weeks, months, years old, you know, littler, we were really interested in the flexibility of the market, but increasingly have been chatting about 529 plans and really realized that there are a host of different ways to save for college. And right now we do have saving a savings goal, a single savings goal save, uh, set up for both girls in Mint. And so that really knows what I need to save in order to get them to a four-year school and how much I need to save on time. And as we have our oldest now heading to kindergarten and we're lucky enough to have public schools in our neighborhood that we feel are outstanding. You know, we're taking the, that commitment we've made every month to go into daycare and preschool and saying, what can we do with that money to start having it build towards education in a different way with college at the, as the end goal? Yeah. I mean, you have to think about those trade-offs. So, you know, if you want your kids to necessarily be able to afford private school at, at the college level, that's a certain price tag. And so maybe during their elementary years, their grade school years, they don't go to the private school so that they have the money for, uh, for public school. You know, in my family, my dad's a uh, huge academic and for us kids, he really wanted us to be able to go to graduate school. And I never quite understood this, but finally I did go to grad school. I went to 
grad school for journalism, had to figure out what exactly was going to be my thing. And they had actually saved money for me for that. They hadn't saved money for undergrad for me, (laughs) funny enough, but grad school, they were able to contribute some and I still got loans, but it was like, for them, it was, um, uh, just, you know, every family's different. For them, it was an important milestone for me to reach. Anyway, that's the 529. If you aren't comfortable with 529s because they are relatively restricting, there are other ways to save like Kimmy is. Okay, last question is from Simon. And it's a question that he kind of feels embarrassed, I think, asking, although I think it's a legit concern. It's absolutely a legit concern. And Simon's thinking about vacations, which so many of us are as summer is kicking off here. And um, he and his wife generally like to splurge on their family vacations, but recently their cousins asked if they would like to go to the beach together for next summer uh, and rent a house together. But between all of us on the podcast here today, uh, Simon's really torn about it. Definitely loves his cousins, but uh, they're quite frugal. And he's worried that if they travel together, what will we do without some of the luxuries and conveniences they're used to? Um Yes, Simon realizes, so spoiled. Um, But is there a polite way to decline? Well, I do think that there's something to be said about hanging out with your financial opposite. You might find some comfort in it. You know, it's true. Married couples end up getting together and they discover, I'm the saver, you're the spender. And while that can be challenging, I think there are some strengths that you can each leverage upon. You know, I think for you, maybe you're used to certain luxuries and extravagances, but maybe you'll be delighted in knowing that your cousins have other ways of affording sometimes the same things for less. So kind of keep an open mind about it. But that said, if you know your cousins pretty well, you know that, you know, they're borderline cheap perhaps, and this is not going to work out. I would say you can tell them that you aren't sure what your plans are going to be next summer. You're still trying to figure things out. You don't want to commit and then have to back out. So they should just go ahead and make their plans. And if it, if it makes sense, if there's room, you guys would love to maybe come for a weekend or a long weekend. And at that point, you'd love to share in the cost as well. Well, absolutely, Farnish. I mean, I would think the only other thing maybe to do before responding is to dig in behind the scenes a little bit. Like, do you think, you know, based on the town that you're targeting, there might be a house that could work where you're not really paying that much more or pushing them out of their comfort zone. Cause oftentimes just adding another bedroom for an adult couple, if there's a bunk room for all the cousins to hang out, you may not be that much more. And it could be actually a lot more luxurious than you're necessarily used to. Sometimes there's a benefit in multiples, right? You get a multiple discount or group discount sometimes when you go out to the museums and things like that. So I think, you know, keep an open mind, explore the situation a little bit more, talk it out a little bit more, but ultimately if you're not feeling it, at the risk of insulting them, don't be super honest. Just say, you know, we're still figuring out our plans for next summer. We love you guys and we love to spend some time together, but don't let our plans prevent you from going forward with your plans. If it makes sense, we'll meet up and it'll be a lot of fun. So good luck to you, Simon. And, you know, I think that we've all had this situation come up, whether it's we're the lone saver in a group of spender friends, we're going out to eat and you feel like I don't want to split the check or vice versa, um, or you're in a relationship and you're frugal and your partner is extravagant. So it, it comes up a lot and especially amongst family and it can get really uncomfortable. Like, what do I actually say? This is that kind of stuff I love tackling. It's the stuff we all need to be more honest about. And the more we can develop that muscle to talk about money, the easier it will be for us all to be conversant. And so we're not offending anybody, but it's just part of the way like, okay, let's set some framework here. Like, 
you know, and, and there's restaurant options. I mean, sometimes when you can go to Mexican or Italian, you can still get really fresh ingredients, organic ingredients, but they're not going to break the bank in some restaurants like that. So look for those experiences around where you guys might be renting. Good idea. Thank you so much, Kimmy. Did you have fun? I had a blast. I'd love to do this, Farnoosh. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. And thanks for you know making time for us, given your busy schedule and you're here for uh, just a short while in New York City. Really excited about the Girl Boss event this week. And thanks to everyone for sending in their questions, even though um, you kept anonymous in some cases. But we really appreciate your questions, Simon, Lizzie, Mary, and Gilbert, and even um, Mr. Anonymous or Ms. Anonymous for wanting to know how I manage my money with Tim. Uh, always happy to uh, go there with you. So don't be shy. If you've got a question for me, go to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh. And these days you can actually leave a voicemail if you'd like on the go. We'd love to hear your voice. And by the way, it's the end of June. The summer is going by too fast. Happy July. Hope your weekend is so money. So money. 